0: From the Spec Network, this is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. This episode of Fragmented is brought to you by Kobaton, empowering mobile developers. Copaton allows you to test your mobile app on real devices. Now, this means that Copaton is a mobile device cloud platform. They provide you with access to real devices so that you can test on the Android devices that you want and when you need them. This allows you to identify issues faster because you're testing on those exact devices. Furthermore, they also provide you with an automatically generated activity log that helps you identify and resolve your issues more quickly you can test the way that you want. So this is a kind of a cool thing too. You can run your tests manually or you can run them through an automated fashion with some type of script. So if you want to connect it up to your CI server, go ahead. Or if you're just going to want to run a few tests manually, that's also an option. Monthly plans start as low as $10 a month. There's no annual commitment required and users can cancel at any time. Visit Cobaton.com fragmented to start your free 15 day trial and see for yourself. In this episode, Kaushik and I sit down and talk with Roman Gui, a software engineer on the Android team at Google. We talk about displays such as the 120 Hz display that was recently shown and talked about on the Android Reddit AMA that we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. We dive into GPUs and CPUs and various different tools that you could use to help profile your application. And we wrap up this whole talk with a kind of a deep dive into what's changed in Android O in relation to color. It's a very deep topic and one that's very interesting with lots of technical nitty-gritty details. We hope you enjoy. So
1: we have someone special on the show today. We do. We have this pretty famous and well-known photographer uh, who knows (laughs) a thing or two maybe about Android too. I'm not sure about the latter part, but man, this guy's a really good photographer. He is. He's always, he's always
0: been on my, uh, my Chromecast, which is amazing. <laughs> I see the, like the title down there. You see the photographer's name, uh, and comes to find out that he knows a little bit about Android too. So, mm-hmm. um, without further ado, uh, Romingue, welcome to the show. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the photos.
1: <laughs> yeah, the photos, man, like, uh, where, where? what's the story behind that? Like, because your, for, I mean, you know, typically when you meet someone, you're like, oh, like, you know, I'm interested in photography. Like, oh, yeah, you know, some of your photos are good. Pictures but of cats. Man, when you look at your photos, like, this is, this, I mean, you know, sometimes I think the only reason they have you at Google is so that, like, you know, the wallpapers, <laughs> <laughs> they need those pretty wallpapers because your pictures are, like, crazy amazing. Well,
2: thanks. I appreciate that. Actually, it's funny because uh, for most of my life, I... Didn't like taking pictures. Actually, hated taking pictures. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I know it's it's weird. Uh, but it's when I moved to the uh, I moved to the US for the first time, I was at uh, Sun Microsystems uh, for an internship. That was in two thousand five slash two thousand six. That's where I met Chet, uh, actually. Oh, uh, uh, And you know, I didn't know anybody here, and I lived by myself, so I started like going on road trips every weekend. Uh, so I bought a camera because you know. The American Southwest is just so beautifully amazing. And I started taking pictures and I haven't really stopped since, uh, since then.
1: What's your camera gear? If you don't mind me asking.
2: Yeah. So right now I'm using, uh, I I have two cameras. Uh, the first one is the one I use only for landscape, uh, pictures. It's a Canon 5DSR. Uh, so it's a big DSLR. It's like a, it's a 50 megapixel sensor. You know, it's big. It's bulky. Like I have a giant backpack. 20 or 25 pounds of gear i have to oh. carry around when it's say to take it with me um and the uh the other camera i use that's my kind of day-to-day camera you know candid photos like street photo or when i travel uh, for work like i go to, to a conference uh it's a leica m10 um, oh wow nice so yeah. it's very different style it's completely manual uh, it's, it's both the worst and the best camera. I've
1: ever
0: used. <laughs> so, enough about the camera talk here. Um, even though we could probably go on that for a long time, we were kind of uh, kind of kicked in the conversations with you over various different topics around hardware and displays and colors and all kinds of other kind of cool stuff that's out there. I know, Kaushik, you had some questions around this and it was very interesting to you too. What made the 120 hertz? display stuff interesting to you to want to bring remain on the show
1: yeah so uh it started like on a previous show right so one of the announcements i think this was yes uh, that's about right. the time like maybe apple released like a display like uh, on the ipads or something for 120 hertz right and then uh, yes the,
2: the new ipad pro
1: yeah the new ipad pro and so i remember like maybe it was on the yeah i think it was on reddit where like you know i think the whole android the, O the ama Yeah, the AMA. In that, one of the threads that came up was, like, Romain actually mentioned about, like, the 120 hertz display existing even before that, like, with, I think, Sharp or something, right? And uh, one of the comments he made was, like, I mean, it almost spoilt you for life, right? (laughs) Like, having seen that. So, again, like, Don rightly mentioned, our understanding of this, at least, like, the hardware layer is, like, very, very limited, right? So, typically, I think it's maybe 60Hz, uh, which is what most screens might be using but like clearly you know a thing or two about this so we want to ask you like hey uh what exactly is this 120 hertz display what does that mean for android is this something that we can get like you know how does one go about this like why isn't this there already like we have so many questions yeah. around this so mm-hmm. we thought like maybe you could give us like enlighten us a little as to why this is not just like a flick of a switch or something
2: why is it important mm-hmm. yeah of course um yeah so so like you said most displays uh, especially on phones these days are at 60 hertz which means the display will scan out the frame buffer sixty times per second. Uh and that's why, you know, we always talk in our in our performance sessions at Google I.O. or various other conferences, we talk about reaching sixty oh. frames per second. Uh it's because that's what the display wants. Um and and it's important because there's also the concept of
1: VSync, uh, so the vertical sync. Oh, interesting. Okay, can you tell us a little about that? Like, I mean, how does it, like the vertical sync work? Yeah,
2: so, so that is that is very important, especially because Android uh, has kind of always taking it, t- taking uh, VSync into account. So the problem is, you know, when the display wants to show you what's in the front buffer, it has to literally, like I said, scan out line by line what's in memory, uh, and that takes some time. Uh, that's not you know. That doesn't happen in, in, an, inst- in an instant. Um, and the time it takes will, will vary from display to display. Um, so the problem is, if you do update the content of the frame buffer during the scan out, you're going to have part of the old image that's already on screen, and then you're going to have part of the new image uh, appear, where you where basically your write into memory will meet the read that the display is doing. Uh, when that happens, uh, that's what we call tearing. And you've probably seen it all in, in games before on PC or even consoles where, like, when you do fast motion, like move the camera, it mm-hmm. looks like the
1: image is split in half a little bit. Oh, so this is called tearing is what you said.
2: This is called tearing. Um, and so one way to, to fight tearing is to use double buffering, uh, which Android has always done. Uh, so the idea is that instead of writing directly into the fan buffer that the display is reading, you just swap between two buffers because that's super fast, right? You're just swapping a pointer, uh, so you redirect the screen to the to the new buffer. Uh, the problem is that when you do that, you still want to be synchronized with the display, uh, because otherwise, if you, if you try to swap uh, whenever you're ready as an application, the display might not be ready. So then you have to wait for it to be done with the previous buffer. Mm-hmm. Um And you might have, uh, that might cause jank, you will have uneven frame rate because, you know, maybe one frame you are able to swap at the right time, maybe the next frame you're swapping in the middle of the scan out and the frame after that you're, you're, you're swapping even later. So the idea with vSync is the display send, sends the system this pulse, you know, 60 times per second saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm about to draw a frame, get ready. Uh, and that's when, you know, we, we, we race in the applications in the system to get everything done in time, uh, for the next canal. Um, so, so that, you know, that is not linked to the, uh, to the frame rate in and of itself, but it's an important part of what makes the experience smooth and jank free. Cause really the idea is trying to have a frame rate that's as stable as possible. Now, on top of that, when you think of the refresh rate, so 60 times per second, it affects uh, what we call latency, especially the perceived latency. So when you when you put your finger on the screen, the the touch panel itself, you know, there's a bunch of electronics that have to read your your your, your input. You know, they see your finger. They have to do some processing on it. They send all that to the system. We do some processing. We send that to the applications. We wait for the VSync. We update the views, we run the apps logic, we render into the frame buffer, then we tell the window compositor to composite all the windows and then swap the buffers. So <laughs> that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're trying to and you're trying to do that 60 times per second. Um so when you do that 60 times per second, the best latency that you can get if you know, nothing else was happening is about 16 milliseconds, right? From the moment you touch the screen to the moment that you see something. Now in practice, you know, touching the screen and doing some processing there takes a few milliseconds. We have double buffering, sometimes triple buffering. So that's uh, 32 or 48 milliseconds there. And then there's the time that it takes, you know, for the actual photons to reach your eyes. Um, so the the benefit of using a, a a high refresh rate display like 120 hertz or even 90 hertz, uh, which are popular displays in VR headsets, is to reduce that latency. Because now if a frame takes eight milliseconds instead of sixteen milliseconds, you just almo- you almost divided the latency in half.
1: Right, right. So it's almost like you can't perceive that that slight lag, if at all there was, like because exactly. it's happening so fast. Like, or it's almost like impossible for your eye to perceive that lag.
2: No, exactly. And, and, you know, and that's why, like I said, that that 120 hertz display have kind of ruined me because when I first played with this this sharp display, I was expecting to have to look very closely, you know, to be able to even tell the difference. But it was so obvious as soon as I touched the screen, like it, it felt so much better. Uh, cause really what's happening is that the pixels as you scroll, uh, seem to be tracking your finger even more closely than they used to. Oh. Uh, and, and that, and without, even if you don't know what's going on, like if you don't know, like, why the device feels better, like it does feel better. And everybody who tried that, you know, I, 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 took the device around the office, to a bunch of <laughs> everybody was, was, was impressed. Um, and that was certainly my reaction with the iPad Pro as well.
1: So. I guess, like, the question is, why can't we do that now? Right? Like, what is the implication? Because, yeah.
2: so we, we could, uh, there are several reasons why it doesn't, uh, exist yet, at least not on, on most devices out there. Like I said, Sharp has been shipping devices for about a year and a half, uh, in Japan. Uh, you can order one and highly recommend it. They're, they're awesome. Um, <laughs> so there are several reasons. The first one is, not all display technologies right now can sustain that kind of refresh rate. Oh. Um, so LCD panels are currently the panels that can do 120 hertz. OLED panels, uh, which are extremely common, especially in high-end phones, uh, and you know OLED has a lot of benefits compared to LCD. But currently they're limited, uh, in terms of refresh rate they can reach. So it's about 75 to 90 hertz, uh, that they can
1: do. Oh, really? Interesting. I, oh, I never knew that. Oh, okay. Yeah, different technology, different
2: technologies, uh, you know, different trade-offs, uh, basically. So that's one of the issues. The, the other one is simply the time, uh, that it takes to render the frames. Uh, so at 60 hertz, you have 16 milliseconds, uh, actually a little less than that, uh, to do everything in the app you have to do. At 120 hertz, now you have eight milliseconds, uh, <laughs> right. and you know, and we know it's already challenging to do uh, s- uh, 16 milliseconds. So eight is well twice as challenging. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. The next problem is bandwidth, because um, at 20, 120 hertz, you need twice the amount of bandwidth uh, compared to 60 hertz, because uh, you're doing you know the work twice as often. Uh, and the problem is that on phones, the bandwidth has not really gone up for the past, I would say, like five or six years. Uh, we're still in the 20 to 35 gigabytes per second range.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Uh, and that's challenging, especially, you know, uh, if you're trying to do white-collar game rendering or maybe HDR for video, like those things also need more bandwidth. Uh, or if you have, you know, higher resolutions, let's say if you're a manufacturer and you want a 4K display, mm-hmm. if you're going to use twice the bandwidth for that. Uh, so the question is: Do you want the bandwidth for more pixels, for more colors, for you know more frame rate, uh, or do you want all of it? Uh, of course, the answer is all of it. But yeah. <laughs> the reality of physics gets gets in the way a little bit, uh, <laughs> and obviously, the, all this uh, has an impact on battery because uh, you're just doing way more mm-hmm. work.
1: Yeah, I had a quick follow-up. Like when you actually mentioned the word wide gamut display, I actually truly understand what it means now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thanks to. Uh, uh, I think it was at IO, I think, right? Like, you gave a talk on color. Like yes, we'll it definitely add a link to that. And maybe, like, you know, if we get some time, we'll, like, touch on that. But, uh, yeah, thank you for that. That was a fantastic talk. Like, you know, it was, it. you went, like, into the fundamentals, not just, like, necessarily how it works on Android, but, like, you know, you gave, like, the fundamentals as to why it matters. So, uh
2: Yeah, it's, it's one of those areas where, uh, ideally, like, any developer who does UI or any designer... Would know all those fundamentals, but it's a complex science and it's hard to find accessible information that's explained, you know, in, in plain English, really. Um, and frankly, some of it, you know, requires like to look at complex graphs or even a bit of math, but it's all easily understandable. It's just, there's not, much, not many good resources out there to, to clearly grasp, uh, everything that's behind. Uh, but it's really not that complicated, you know, when you only
1: worry about the, the fundamentals it also was additionally helpful because you explained it for like, you know, with the developer audience in mind where like, mm-hmm. you know, like this is what you know and like, you know, this is the fundamentals. And so you know, that was like super, we'll add a link to that in the show notes for sure. The 120 Hertz display. So it refreshes
0: faster. It sounds like that's something that's would make, you know, games fantastic. Anything that you want really responsive, better. Like if you're creating like a, a sampler app for like audio processing or, anything like video editing stuff like that sounds like it would work great but for like general applications general application development which you know a lot of developers do business line of business applications is this something that us as developers here on the front lines of development can optimize our applications for is it should we be using high-res images vectors or is there anything we can do but to um
2: and yeah, no, that's a good question and, and actually uh, if i take a little step back there are some some benefits beyond just the the latency. So you mentioned uh, video applications. Uh, it's actually great for video playback. because uh, one of the issue is a lot of uh, you know a lot of videos out there, like movies in particular, are at twenty four frames per second, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is not a multiple of sixty. Um, so how do you playback twenty four frames per second on a sixty hertz display? Well, the answer is there there's a technical the 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 three two pull down where you've kind of mix and match frames. Um like I don't remember exactly how it works, but it's like every three frames, you take two of the frames and you, you mix them together, you interlace them. Uh you know, it's complicated and it doesn't give the, the best possible results. So the the, the huge benefit of a one twenty hertz display is that it happens to be a multiple of twenty four. Uh and that means you can play back those
1: movies smoothly uh on, on those displays. I got to go back and like research this because I think like, yeah, this three, two pull down is what you mentioned.
2: Yes. Um, and then, uh, similar kind of related to the high refresh rate displays, there are technologies, uh, especially on, on PC for gaming called uh, FreeSync and G sync, uh, from respectively AMD and, and Nvidia. The idea is that instead of having the display drive, uh, basically give you the tempo saying, Hey, I need a frame now. I need a frame now you flip it around and when the computer is ready to give the display a frame then the display shows the frame and the huge advantage of that is that suddenly you can display things at random frame rates you can display at maybe 40 fr- 47 frames per second and it will feel smooth because the display will not be you know fighting with, with the apps basically. Um and so this that's very interesting for, for games or any really interactive type of application. And I believe that Qualcomm has a technology called QSync. I haven't looked at it in detail um, that, that does similar things on mobile. Um, so it might be coming in the future on all on platforms. It's gonna be interesting to see uh, to see if and when that happens. Uh but anyway, back to your question about about what you can do in your apps. Uh it's you know the usual answer of uh <laughs> optimize your application, don't do too much. Uh, don't use too many views, you know, be careful about the code you write. And, and really, if you look at, you know, if you run SysTrace on your application and you you, you look at uh, what it takes to run at 8 milliseconds, you might be surprised. Uh, it's It's hard. It's difficult.
0: I can imagine. We really uh, fight to yeah. get down to sixty. I mean, to to support sixty frames a second.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and it really and it really depends on it really depends on your application. You know, like if you do, if you have an application like if you're working on a on an audio editor uh, as an application and you do a lot of custom rendering of those waveforms, uh, that might be more difficult. That if you only have a recycler view and you're just scrolling a list of you know data where you you prefetch everything beautifully and. But, you know, all, all the tips and tricks that we've been talking about for the past, well, 10 years now, they all certainly apply, and even more so than before, uh, because they yeah, are reaching that, uh, that, that 120 hertz is going to be challenging for some applications. Now, the good news is, if you do miss the deadline for 120 hertz, uh, you're going to fall back to 60, which is not so bad.
1: <laughs> okay, so that, may, that makes sense. A, kind of
0: kind of a win-win Where I, I do have, a, actually, another follow-up question from a few minutes ago. I didn't get a chance to, to hop in there. You said something that was interesting. You said LCD, and then you said, you know, you know OLED, O L E D. There's also something is uh, I can totally mess this up. I'm not a display guy. It's AMO, AMOLED. LED, yeah. AMOLED, mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the difference between these different, you know, acronyms in you know respect to screens and hardware? And is it something that developers need to worry about? It's
2: not something. Well, uh, OLED versus uh, uh, LCD. Kind of. Um, now the AMOLED is kind of you can think of it as a variant of OLED. So for all intents and purposes, it's, pre, it's pretty much the same thing. There's also something called POLED, uh, POLED. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so you know, like, and, and there's also other things that are not used in phones yet. For instance, uh, I think Samsung has something called quantum dots, uh yet another variant of those technologies. The, the biggest difference between uh OLED technologies and LCDs. So on LCD displays, you have a backlight, um, right. whereas with OLED, every pixel emits light. So okay. what, what this allows you to do is that when you want to display black, uh, you can just turn off a pixel. Uh, so you get much better contrast,
1: right? The true blacks is definitely one thing, right? Like that's like a common yeah. like ding against LCDs versus like OLED. Even though you mentioned LCDs can do 120 hertz yes. refresh, but like I don't like they don't. Yeah, the contrast, like you said,
2: exactly. No, and, and it's funny because uh, if you look at uh, HDR TVs, for instance, some of them like LG has uh, has OLED TVs, and they claim that they have an infinite contrast ratio. It's because if your black is really black, so zero, when you do the ratio you divide by zero, which you know is infinity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Got it, yeah. Which is, you know,
2: it's kind of true, but slightly misleading <laughs> well.
1: that's like a marketing gimmick. Yeah.
2: But but that's that's a big benefit. Um the other thing that OLED displays uh and I am not entirely sure why, like, you know, it it it, it depends on uh, it's based on, on how they're manufactured and the technology behind it, but OLED displays are better at displaying uh wider color gamuts. Uh, so there's a lot of, you'll find a lot more wide game with displays that are based on OLED versus LCDs. Uh, there are wide game with LCDs out there. Definitely. Uh, Apple is using them for instance, in their, in their laptops and in their, in their desktop displays. Uh, but you know, pretty much all the Android phones with a wide game with display use OLED. I don't know of any that that's using an LCD. There might be,
1: but you know, there's
2: just so many devices out there. There's no way to, for me to know
1: the next thing that i wanted to like transition us into is like you know we sort of like understand uh, you gave us like some good tips right uh, i'm i'm writing this down by the way one of the tips you gave is like always use relative layout cuz that's how we get like you know we <laughs> reduce the number of like views and like you know that was a very famous Recommendation by you, right? So oh, 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 you make always, sure. oh, always be
2: careful, as you see the word "always" on, on <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: that's good. That's good. I mean, for folks that are listening, like there's like this running joke where there's. Do you even remember when it was? Like, I think it was like quite some time back. You gave like a long this, time ago. Yeah, that was probably
2: 2008 or 2009. Yeah, that was a long time ago.
1: Early, early on, there was a talk where like R- uh, Romain essentially like gave like showed the benefits of when a relative layout can make sense but i think like at some point like uh, uh you said like oh okay in these cases always use a layout and i think like the internet took that to heart or like at least the android developer community took that to heart and they started using relative layouts for everything and that but is actually no, it's
2: it's uh-huh. true of so many things uh especially in our in our industry where every pattern or recommendation somehow becomes a a rule or a law um, you know, it's like back then we had, we had this, uh, this optimization called the view holder pattern. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh so gosh. Yeah. Something I also mentioned because, you know, back then it was, it was giving us, I don't know the exact details, but it was in the order of like five, 10 frames per second or something, mm-hmm. uh, which was a big deal. So of yeah. course today it probably, it probably doesn't even matter. Like it's probably the noise. Uh, but it shows that when you see those, especially when it comes to performance, you should always first measure uh then apply you know whatever advice you heard then measure again uh and see if it still holds up because it might not and and, and there's no reason to you know be mad at the original advice uh because it was probably true at some point in time it just things change technology evolve uh i mean the phones we have today are so different both in hardware and software oh, sure. compared to 10 years ago uh and, and even you know at the cpu level like i spent a lot of time with a uh a friend and coworker of mine, we, we often like disassemble, uh, native code and we try to optimize, you know, C C, C code down to the, to, well, the assembly level. Uh, and same thing, like you see advice from like 2000, 2005, 2006 that just doesn't hold anymore, uh, today. Mm-hmm. And you think that CPUs haven't changed that much, but they have, uh, compilers have evolved, like everything evolves. Um, and you know, th- there's so many things like that where, uh, async task is another example that, you know, people <laughs> using it for, for everything. And you're like, no, no, that that's not what it was for. Um, and the, the list is endless, right? Uh, so just, yeah, be, think about what you're doing. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, that's, that's golden advice. Like understand what the advice is hinting at and then try to apply that. Mm-hmm. to your,
2: Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's certainly uh, something uh, that we, we tried. You know, want to say we, uh, Chet and I, we, we try to convey in our talks. We like to explain, you know, what how things work in the under the hood so that when we give you an advice it's really what we care about is to make you understand how things are inside and also to give you like enough insight that someday if you run into an issue you might have you know intuitions or or the will to like go look at the source code or something because the, the advice itself is not as valuable i think as knowing what to look for and when to go look for it because if you're just you know using the public APIs and don't try to understand anything about what's behind, like, you're going to be stuck uh, one way or another at some point.
0: <laughs> and I think it's important to even say that the, the tooling to even profile these things has changed over the years, and that kind of leads me to a quick question for you. If you were to recommend Android, and I'm not trying to make this as some blanket statement again, mm-hmm. but if you were to recommend the current tools at this given time, what would you recommend folks to be using to profile their, their, their applications to make sure that they're falling within you know certain boundaries for we can get 60 frames per second or better
2: well it's kind of all of them uh okay. so the first one that i usually tell people to start with is uh sys trace because it gives you a view of, of the system and it makes it fairly easy to grasp where or when the problem happens in your application it's kind of like a, a high level view as an, as an app developer um then, depending on what you identify, you will turn to the new CPU profilers that we have in Android Studio that will show you, like, you know, methods by method inside your code where you're spending most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, there are still things like the layout, layout inspector slash viewer that will, you know, if you've identified that the problem is too many views, then, then you'll, you'll go use that tool. Uh, so it's really like, you know, it's really a toolbox. You know, there's not one magic tool that mm-hmm. will give you all the answers. Uh, and I, I wish there was, right? Uh, but really like you have to know like which tool to use when but uh, usually starting with stress is a, is a fairly good idea. Yeah,
0: I just recently played with the new profiler so kudos to to you and the Android team and all the the tooling team who put that stuff together it's fantastic.
2: Oh yeah, it's all the tooling team yeah they did a, a really good job It's nice to uh, to see good profilers in the studio.
1: One thing you mentioned is you said you you and a colleague of yours like like to play with CPU and like you know like play at yeah. assembly level. Uh, mm-hmm. I found One thing that, like, you know, in the early days that always confused me in my career as, like, a programmer was the difference between, like, GPUs and CPUs, right? And over time, I've sort of, like, formed an understanding. But, I mean, given that, like, you clearly, like, know a lot about this, right, I want to ask you if you could, like, walk us through uh, where does the CPU fit in and, like, where does the GPU fit in, right? Like, what kinds of uh, tasks, like, fit in at that level? And as an Android developer, Mm -hmm. right, like, at what level do I have to worry about this stuff right like just out of curiosity like if i have a view that's rendering right i know at some point we are touching the hardware layer and we're heading into the gpu layer right but can you like walk us through like you know give us like a sort of overview of that uh? of course yeah
2: it's, it's 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 a good question especially because over the past you know few years and i'd say like three four years the boundary has been fuzzier and fuzzier especially on the PC and console side where now we're now starting to see uh, game engines where they use the GPU more and more like a CPU uh, where they don't even use the CPU anymore to drive the rendering of a frame so it's not yet there on mobile but uh, it's gonna sh- it's gonna come someday um, yes so on, on Android we we've always used the GPU uh, since Android 1. Uh at first it was limited to the window composition, so surface flinger uh was the only component in the system you're really using the, the, the GPU. Uh in you know, Honeycomb we 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 added the uh, hardware rendering inside the applications. So at a high level, what happens when you uh, when your app requests a repaint, so when you call invalidate, you get those callbacks in your views we call the onDraw method. Uh we give you a canvas and that's where you do your painting. As far as you're concerned, you know, as an application, that's, that's when you do your painting. What we actually do is that we don't do any work right there. We just record all the drawing commands, uh, everything that you invoke on the canvas, we just record those commands, and we store them to, in what we call uh display. List. Now it's called the render node uh, in the internal implementation. And then when we know that all the views are done uh, recording their drawing commands, we send them to the render thread uh, to actually execute them. So we go through the commands again, and this time we turn them into uh, OpenGL draw calls. Now, what's interesting is uh, when you when you invoke an OpenGL function, uh, there's a you know this one's a GL draw. Uh, there's, a, there's a family of functions called GL draw something. Those also don't draw right now uh, on most GPUs. They also record and get executed later. Uh, So there's a lot of differing of of the actual work. And the reason we do that is because if we record all the commands, uh, and that's why we do it and that's why the GPUs do it, when we know that we have the complete frame, we can look at the entire frame and we can do a lot of optimizations based on that knowledge that we wouldn't have if we were drawing immediately when you tell us to. So a good example is something that we introduced in KitKat where we looked at, we see all the drawing comments that you need to render in a frame, and we try to sort them to minimize uh, what we call state changes in the GPU because those are expensive. Uh, but we also sort them so we can batch comments together. So a good example is like, you know, if you're in the settings application, there's a lot of text on screen. All that text uses pretty much the same font. It's the same font color. Uh, it's the same font size, all of that. So what we can do is in, instead of drawing, you know, 20 times, like once per list item, we can batch all those pieces of text together and issue only one draw call to the GPU, uh, which saves a bunch of, of time because we, we only invoke the driver once instead of, you know, 20 times or, or, or whatnot. Uh, and, and the GPU does something similar. Um, there's a lot of, except for NVIDIA, although it's a, it's a little more complicated than that, but... Uh, the GPUs out there from, uh, ARM, IMG, and Qualcomm, uh, they're what we call titers. So the way they render the screen, they render the screen into small tiles. Um, so for instance, they take a portion of 16 by 16 pixels, they render that. Then they take another square of 16 by 16 pixels, then they render that and and the reason they do that is ex- exactly what i mentioned they can do a bunch of optimizations because they know that in that particular tile uh they can you know merge a lot of commands or avoid some state changes or so yeah it's uh it, it's quite complicated under the hood uh and and really you reach the gpu quite late in the process
1: <laughs> <laughs> interesting and one thing that you mentioned is like you know the 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 idea that where they're trying to like ship as many commands and get it to run i think part mm-hmm. of that is because like then you jump between like layers between the GPU and the CPU, like that is uh, partially, I mean, like relatively, that's a costly operation. So you want to like bunch up as many operations as you can, and like the GPU do its thing, right? It's not necessarily
2: about that uh, as much as the fact that a, a GPU driver—it's uh, less true about Vulkan, uh, but with OpenGL, the driver does a lot of work on your behalf. You know, optimizations, like I mentioned, validation, error checking, that kind of stuff. So calling into the driver is, is a very expensive call. Uh, it it takes a lot of CPU time. Got it. So the more you can, the more you can avoid uh, jumping into the driver, the more CPU time you save. And then we have what we call what I mentioned, the state changes that are more at the software level as well, where you say, you know, oh, now I'm going to do blending, and I want to use this new shader. So the driver has to revalidate your shader. It has to change maybe some hardware registers. So there, there are some overheads there, uh, and that's why you do, like you try to, to sort as much as possible to avoid those, those changes. When you think about it, it's kind of like you know, network requests where instead of doing you know, a thousand right, right? Uh, mm-hmm. remote requests where you're going to request just a couple of bytes of data, and you're going to pay for the overhead of you know, the different network layers, you just want to do everything at once uh, to go faster.
0: You said something a few seconds ago that piqued my interest, and that was the word Vulcan. <laughs> what
1: I, what is this thing that is known as Vulcan? And I think like when uh, Chet and Romain were doing like their like what's new in Android, and I remember in one of these talks, like you know, Romain mentioned like Vulcan, and he was so excited. And then Chet was like, "You're probably the only one in this room who's that excited about Vulcan." <laughs> right,
2: and you know, and as application developers, you should probably not worry or even think about Vulcan. Uh, Vulkan is a low-level graphics API, so it's closer to the hardware than, than OpenGL. I mean, and in a way, it's so close that you don't get any error checking. Uh, so when things go wrong, then you're on your own. Uh, OpenGL, for instance, does, does a lot of synchronization for you. Let's say that I upload a texture in the GPU, and then I say, I want to draw with that texture. OpenGL will guarantee that by the time it draws, the texture is ready. You know, there's an implicit synchronization for me, so it's super easy to use. With Vulkan, if I upload data to the GPU and I want to draw with it, I have to use my own, you know, synchronization objects in the GPU, in the driver to make sure oh, that the data wow. is ready yeah and and so it's extremely powerful that way uh also uh, OpenGL is single threaded the API is single threaded uh with Vulkan you can use multiple threads you can reuse uh state more than you can with OpenGL so there's a lot of benefits when you work on engines or middleware uh but it's also more complicated. It's harder to use. Uh, just a hello world in Vulkan. If you if you search for hello world, you might be uh, quite surprised and maybe even offended uh, by the likes of it. <laughs> it, it. It is a lot of code, and, and for good reasons, right? Because it, it just gives you. It's more flexible, um, but yeah, it's it's more work for for engine developers, which they love because you know they then they can. They, they can even, be more efficient.
1: Yeah, you get closer to the metal, so to speak. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean by that by that same token, like even OpenGL, like you mentioned, single threaded. This was not. I mean, at least like, correct me if I'm wrong here. This wasn't like necessarily a deficient, like deficiency. Uh,
2: the the reason why it's not multi threaded is more to do, I believe, with uh, compatibility, backward compatibility, because uh, OpenGL has been around since the early nineties, uh, and at least on desktop, like the OpenGL one, like you can still run OpenGL one applications on desktop. They will they will just work, uh, you know, minus driver bugs or whatnot. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. in a way, it's kind of impressive that they maintain that compatibility. But it means that you know they couldn't do multi-threading, and the drivers have become extremely complex. It's a giant state machine. It's the biggest state machine I've ever seen. Uh, and and I usually joke that if Google ever wants to fire me. Uh, Instead of firing me, they can just ask me to either write an OpenGL driver or make me uh, write a C++ parser. Uh, Either way, I'm out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nope, I'm gone. Peace out.
2: (laughs) Yeah, too, too much work, too complicated, too hard. Um, and Vulkan is kind of like, you know, reimagining uh, the rendering API for 2016, 2017, like what it should look like now. And I alluded to that a little bit earlier when I said that uh, the, the boundary between CPU and GPU is getting a little blurry, where more and more the GPU is used to not necessarily do actual rendering, but to do computation. So we have the concept of compute shaders um, in OpenGL. There are also languages like CUDA uh, or RenderScript. That are really meant to do just computations, and there's a lot of things you do in an engine. For instance, I, I worked on, on on small rendering engine with a friend of mine, and you know we do we run computations on on the GPU that have nothing to do with actual pixels. Like we are we're actually trying to find visible uh, lights inside the, the view frustum of of the player. Uh, so, and 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 Vulcan in that regard is is interesting because it it, it takes that into account. You know it's Modern graphics is surprisingly a lot more about data management than anything else.
1: Interesting, interesting.
2: Um, yeah, so you you end up writing a lot of data structures and you know crazy algorithms to go through those data structures as fast as possible. Uh, but you no, know, the, the biggest uh, and to go back to your original question, like there there are still like huge differences between CPUs and GPUs, and the biggest one is that the GPUs what we call. Them, uh, Massively parallel or embarrassingly parallel. And so, and so sometimes. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) interesting.
1: Embarrassingly parallel. I like that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: It's fun because you, you sometimes have to like rethink your algorithms, uh, to work completely differently on the GPU because they're really, really good at running in parallel. Um, like there was, there was one, for instance, that I wrote originally on, on the CPU where if imagine you have a 3D grid and you have spheres and you want to know, what, what cells of that grid, uh, the, the spheres intersect? Uh, and because the grid is big, you have, you know, thousands and thousands of cells. What makes sense is on the CPU, the way you parallelize, you say, okay, run on each thread, put a sphere, and then you, you check, like, what cells does, uh, every sphere intersect? Uh, that works great, but, you know, in this algorithm, like, it involved uh, locks and mutexes, which is completely fine on the CPU. The same algorithm on the GPU, you want to avoid this memory synchronization. So what you do instead, you don't say, I'm going to run a, a thread per, a, a, a sphere per thread. You're going to do it the other way around. You're going to say, I'm going to go through all the cells. And for every cell, I'm going to test all the spheres because there are fewer spheres than there are cells. So you want to paralyze on the cells because the GPU is really good at that. Um, so, so you, you have to think differently. Uh, and then, uh, because you're thinking differently, like the way you, you know you you pack your data in memory becomes extremely important um, to make sure that the GPU is not starved and like constantly always running. But the good news is that you basically have no debuggers, uh, so it's extremely
1: difficult. <laughs> <to run> it <laughs> good. good news in quotes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, these days, like, there is, like, the common argument, right? Like, for the longest time, people bet that, like, you know, CPUs were going like, to get incredibly faster. But, like, the thing that, like, folks didn't expect or sort of, like, you know, it crept on is, like, the parallelism of GPUs, right? You know, if you pick a modern-day computer, in terms of, like, the power, like, the parallelization, like, having more, like, GPUs in a core versus, like, having, like, an extremely powerful CPU, right? It Does that, I guess, like, my question is, like, how do you see that translating in the mobile world, right? Like, are we gonna see similar sort of things? Uh, like, you know, as like, I mean, obviously this is like some time away. I don't think like it will yeah, happen anytime soon, but like, what are your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're gonna see similar things. The, you know, the, the GPUs on, on mobile are getting really, really good. Uh, the Like every generation like the compute power we get like goes up significantly. Uh, I'm actually shocked by the kind of shaders we can run today on mobile. Uh, our biggest limitation remains the bandwidth. Um, we are several orders of magnitude behind desktop when it comes to bandwidth, and that's that's a severe limitation. What you can achieve, especially for rendering. Um, now, th- the fact is, there's also you know GPUs are often touted as this magic beast that can solve all problems, and that is certainly not true. Um, uh, just to give you an idea, and i'm I'm oversimplifying the problem, of course, but the way gPUs work is so they can run you know a bunch of threads in parallel uh, so often we, call, we, we talk about a, a wavefront uh, so for instance, on desktop, you know you can have sixty four execution units at the same time. so what those do is they all run the same program, so they run the same piece of code and but they run in in, in lockstep. So if any one of them takes a branch, you know, you have an if, if else, uh, if any one of them takes that branch, it will have to wait for the other execution threads to be done with their branch before it can go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very different from a CPU where every thread, as long as they're on, you know, different cores, they don't have to wait for each other. Uh, so again, it, it's really, really designed for the, the very problem of, of graphics where you know that most likely all the data that's close to each other uh, is gonna execute the same instructions. And and so that's why they're not meant uh or not good at running you know general processing algorithms. Uh,
1: it's not like this parallelization machine that you can just simply throw things at like it is like a little more yeah. subtle
2: than that. And, and for instance also because uh the way 3D works, uh GPUs care about floating points. Uh, so they're really, really good about at doing floats but they're not that good at doing integers. Actually, uh, an integer division is incredibly expensive <laughs> on the GPU.
1: Oh, uh, interesting, okay.
2: But that's what apps do, right? Like, that, that that's what you do in most of your applications. Uh, so again, they are, they're extremely optimized for, for very specific tasks. Uh, and yeah, programming for one versus programming for the other, it's, it's yeah, very two very different things. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the CPUs we have today like have, have also gotten better. Now we have out-of-order execution CPUs, we have a lot of cores, uh, the branch predictions are awesome, we have really big caches, the instruction sets, for instance, the uh, Neon, you, you might have heard of that, like on ARM, mm-hmm. uh, to do like parallel, it's a form of parallel computing, it, it's also extremely good, and the compilers have become insanely good as well. Uh, so, you know, it's not like the
1: CPUs are left behind, they're just they're just good at different things on a different note i wanted to ask you about is like and we mentioned this previously in the like as we were talking about like color right Uh, Mm -hmm. this is i mean we'll definitely add this link to the show notes it's a fantastic uh, talk that you gave and obviously i don't think we're we're going to cover the whole thing i think the listener should just like go and watch that talk Uh, i guess like my question that i wanted to follow up with you is you are extremely excited about like uh, Android O doing something right with color, right? So like, could you yeah. like, maybe give us like a sort of like rundown on why I as like an Android user should like be excited? Like you know like right. what what has changed about the way the like color is like rendered with Android?
2: Right? Yeah, yeah. So fundamentally, I think that's a problem that any Android developer has run into. Uh, the fact that, you know you take like two or three random Android devices, and you put your app on all those devices, you run it, mm-hmm. and the colors will be completely different. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. It, which, then QA uh, comes after you. Yeah, QA comes after <laughs> you or
2: design. Uh, it might actually be an issue for branding. Uh, I think it was uh, Joachim uh, Verges who works at Twitch uh, from the Falcon Profame who was telling me that it, <laughs> they can't get their purple right on, on any device. <laughs>
1: Uh, I guess like Twitch, pro- Yahoo, some of those folks have that. Problem, yeah, I and, guess.
2: <laughs> and, and it's true. Like you know, there are some brands out there where a, a single color for me, Twitch is purple. Uh, like I, I barely, I can barely remember the logo, but I know that they're, they're purple. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a problem that we've had on desktops as well. you know, especially as a as a photographer, I've always have had this issue where you know you spend hours. Taking your pictures and processing them and tweaking them. And then you show them to friends and they look completely different. (laughs) I I swear they look better than that.
1: This Uh, is why you spend four hours early morning, like, you know, camping at that place. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, so fundamentally the prime, and and if you want the details, you know, there's, there's my talk, but we don't have a way of capturing or recreating the visible spectrum. So, all the visible colors that our eyes and our brains can perceive, uh, we don't have the technology to, to capture and recreate that. So we have a limited form uh, with the uh, you know, we have the stress stimulus values. So we use RGB. It's one model when one we're representing colors. And in the the space of visible colors, uh, if you have three points, that basically makes a triangle. Uh, and again, I'm oversimplifying. And the problem is that every display out there has a different triangle. Uh, can represent a different slice of of what we can see, uh, and so then when we have those those color values in our apps, you know, typically with eight bits per per channel, so we have zero to two fifty five for red, and zero to two fifty five for green, and for blue, the question is, when you say red equals two fifty five, is which red are you talking about? Um, like in what triangle are you in that visible spectrum? And that's, that's the fundamental issue. Like, we, we have this arbitrary encoding that doesn't have a frame of reference unless you have what we call a color space. And a color space is that frame of reference. And then there's all, then there's a lot of math when we know the source color space in which you've picked your color and we know the destination color space of your display. Uh, with a bit of math and magic, uh, we can turn <laughs> your, your color from one space to the other and preserve, you know, most of the time <laughs> the, the original intent. And we can get, we can find like hopefully the closest color to what you originally wanted and, you know, make it look like we have the same color on every display. And so what Android did before Android O was effectively nothing. Uh, so when Oh, you said so we it's, were,
1: oh, so it's almost like the keys. Like are the same, but like the legend for like the map, like, you know, it's almost like you, you have like the absolute values and you're just literally using the same absolute values from a different yeah. color space. You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's like if I told you, you know, if I gave you directions on the map and I said, okay, so walk, you know, a hundred feet uh, this way, then 200 feet that way. If I don't tell you what's your starting point, uh, that's not extremely useful. Right, right, <laughs> the answer right, is right. always right. going to be wrong. <laughs> um, so, so uh, before Android, oh, what we're doing is, you know, you're right to 55 would be, Whatever was the most red color that your display could do. Uh, and on LCD displays, most LCDs have very similar capabilities. Uh, again, I'm oversimplifying, but, uh, most LCD displays are close to what we call sRGB, uh, which is a color space. It's, you know, yeah, a very common one. But OLED displays, uh, they're called white color game with displays because they can, they can represent more colors than this sRGB space. And sRGB is the one that basically you're most likely using if you're uh, using a, a desktop or a laptop for design. So, so what we ended up with was you pick your red on your sRGB display, like, the color designer picks that red, and then we effectively remap it to a red that's redder <laughs> on an OLED display. It <laughs> looks super saturated. Right, and, Right. And, right. And in a way, that's also why, like, you know, a lot of people like OLED displays because they feel, you know, it feels like you have a lot of contrast and a lot of saturation. It feels like and the really. whole
1: screen pops, right? Like, it's like in some, like, right. displays, like, it feels like everything is just, like, so colorful, right? <laughs> exactly. But the problem is that, you know,
2: sometimes it pops too much.
1: Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and if you got their YouTube redesign uh, recently, you're going to see that they're, the, the red of their logo is even redder than it used to be. <laughs> and OLED display, it's really, really red. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the point that we've seen is, you know, over over time, uh, even without knowing it, developers and designers have desaturated their colors to adapt to the OLED displays. Oh.
0: So now what, what you
2: have is, you know, <laughs> so now we have the opposite issues where what used to be like Popping colors on OLEDs are now muted colors on LCDs. <laughs> and, you
1: know,
2: th- that doesn't solve anything, right? Uh, you just shifted the problem somewhere else.
1: Right, right, right and, right.
2: and it's also difficult because that means for a designer, like, you know, they design on their on their computer, then they wait for an implementation, then they look at it and say, ah, that's not what I want, they have to tweak, and you're kind of working in the blind, right, uh, right, right. which is never ideal. Um, so color management in O, the idea is that we want to kind of solve this, this issue, uh, it won't happen magically because the only way to solve it properly is that we need to know the color space of the display. So we need that display to be measured, uh, hopefully in factory uh, per per device. All right, right, Uh And without that, there's not much we can do. Uh, if we don't have that capability, if we don't have the color space of the, of the display, there's still one thing we can do that we do in Android O is look at the color profiles of images. So uh, images that have been uh, properly handled uh, come with that information about their source color space. And again, what we did in Android uh, before Android O was do nothing with that information, <laughs> completely ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> so now what we do with Android O at the very least, if we don't know what the display can do, we assume because uh, it's the only assumption we can make. We assume that it's an sRGB display. So we look at the at the color space information from the image and we convert the image to sRGB. Uh, so at least if you have an image with, uh, with a certain red inside uh, and then you have a red desa- defined in your application, hopefully as sRGB, then they will match on screen where they used to not match. So not we'll exactly. give you at least that. <laughs> uh, but there's still, you know, oh... Doesn't have, like, doesn't cover, like, everything that can be done for color management. Uh, for instance, we let you draw with those bitmaps that have a color space and that can be, you know, more than sRGB. What we didn't do, uh, because we just didn't have the time, really, uh, is give you the ability to do the same with the canvas. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. When you think about it on Android, like, you define colors everywhere, right? You have those color ints uh, that you, you set the background drawable color, the text color, the paint color, all that stuff. Uh, so this is assumed to be sRGB. Uh, so we would need new APIs uh, in a future version of Android, hopefully, to let you give us uh, a color with a color space, so you can tell us how, like, what is that color you're actually rendering on screen.
1: Right, right, right. So it's almost like you're providing also like that legend, that color space, like you know the map, so to speak, that we've been talking about. So that's also provided. So like you know the true. The true translation can happen at that point. Right? Exactly.
2: And, and that becomes important because since we do have white color game with displays, if by definition, uh, by assumption, I would say all the content is sRGB because that's basically what the what the internet is made of, and we do the mapping correctly, like we do now. Then you have that uh, you have all those colors that you can't reach anymore. Because remember, when I said like you had that red to fifty-five, we used to map it to the to the redest color, but now we don't do that anymore. So suddenly you have all those other colors we're not using. But with sRGB, you can't reach those colors uh, because they're outside of the range that you can use. Uh, so if we want to give the applications the ability to to make use of all those colors, we need to. We need to give you the ability to tell us like what color space you're working with. That's that's the important part. Uh, but it's less important for, you know, images are the part that we solve, and that's where it matters the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little less important for, for the rest of the APIs. Uh, but now someone, uh, <laughs> probably will be me, uh, <laughs> will have to go through all the APIs that, that take an int and make a variant that takes something else uh, to specify the color
1: space along. I guess given, like, you're, like, one of the people who work on the framework that care about this the most, like, you know.
2: (laughs) It's not just caring. It's also like over the years, you know, it's a kind of feature. It was interesting working on it because uh, to implement that feature, I had to change uh, the window compositor, the rendering engine, uh, the loading of bitmaps, introduce new APIs, I had to change the tools that capture screenshots, I had to change the viewer in Android Studio. You know, it touches everything. It's not necessarily a lot of code, but it's Everywhere in the code base. And and, and basically you're hiding that extra bit of information. Say, okay, now you have a color space. But, you know, when a bitmap is sent to another process, now we also need to send that along. So, you know, it's pieces of code like this that you have to plug in everywhere. Um, and and for me, that was not too difficult because, you know, I've been doing Android for over 10 years now. Uh, and I I have a fairly good idea of where,
1: where to go look for. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, where to look. Yeah. Uh I, I know where to look. Uh, it's just a matter of doing it. Romain, this has been like, so, this is so good. Like, and I'm pretty sure we can go on for like another two, three hours, but we know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we gotta let you go at some point, but this is, this is fantastic. This is like, thank you so much for spending the time. Yeah, this, thank you. This, well, thank you for uh, having me. If folks want to like reach out to you and like, you know, maybe ask you a little more hardware, questions and stuff like what's a good way they can do that?
2: Uh, so there's uh, Twitter uh, where my, I'm easy to find just Romangi, uh, one word uh, first name last name I also have a website called curious-creature.com uh, and my my email is on that website it's just uh, something first name last name at curious-creature.com uh, they can just shoot me an email uh, hopefully I will reply I try to reply to everybody but you know, I, I don't always sorry about that uh, but yeah, those are, those are the two best ways to reach
1: me. It, it, there's an interesting story because I used to follow your blog, Curious Creatures, for a long time and I didn't know it was actually you. Because <laughs> <like, laughs> you know, I just like, used to read like, the posts and like, you know, see, because like, at some points you also like, posted pictures and stuff there, right? Yes, yeah. a lot of pictures. Yeah, yeah, so I I didn't know it was you for the longest time until I realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's all starting to make sense in my brain. Don, <laughs> if folks want to like, like reach out to you and ask you about like other color stuff and like what settings you have on your phone and like you know if you have flux turned on or like night mode turned on like what's a good way to ask people flux is turned on right now i'm sorry remain <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> oh. oh. it's it's late over here so it's it's on but uh, anyway the best way to reach me is uh, on twitter at don Filker. and what if folks want to talk to you about your various different gpu cpu chat Kaushik, how can I get a hold of you?
1: The same as you folks, first name, last name, Kaushik Gopal on Twitter is like the best way to reach me. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Romain, again, thank you so, so much. This was Thanks. so enjoyable for us. All right, folks, we will catch you in the next episode.
0: Once again, we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, kobaton empowering mobile developers. If you're looking for a real device testing lab that allows you to test and identify issues faster, you want to check out Kobaton. Monthly plans start as low as $10 a month and there's no annual commitment. Visit slash fragmented to start your free 15 day trial and see for yourself.
1: That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. Sarah the Amazing Jackson from The Spec Network helps with production assistance and wraps our final mix. Our theme and ad music is by the national recording artist Blueprint from Weightless Recordings. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.